According to a unanimous judgment of the sources, the young Pope John Twelfth was a dissolute pontiff who didn't interrupt his life of reckless abandon in unbridled pleasures, even with his election to the papal throne. His crimes were well known to the inhabitants of Rome. Simony, sacrilege, blasphemy, adultery, incest, abstention for the sacraments, use of weapons, and trafficking with the devil. What is the trad response to apparent papal paganism? Today on the 1 Peter 5 podcast. In just a minute. <laughs> Lost all my, my gusto here. So today we're talking about the, the, new, the things that have been in the news today. Uh, and all of the controversy surrounding Pope Francis. So before we get into that, here's my intro. <laughs> so welcome to this very live broadcast of the 1 Peter 5 podcast. I'm Timothy Flanders, the editor-in-chief of 1 Peter 5. Rebuilding Christendom, Restoring Catholic Culture and Tradition. Please become a monthly donor. We're trying to rebuild our monthly base before we get into our topic. I want to remind you that we are a nonprofit. We need your support to continue our work here. This, this is offered to, for free to the public, but it's not free to produce. We have our own costs. We're trying to rebuild our, our donor base. So please support us at onepeter5.com slash donate. So let's get into our topic. Uh, we wanted to talk about the traditional principles that are at play here. And I want to bring up the example of Pope John Twelfth because I believe it's going to serve as an example for all of us, a traditional example in this particular case. And so we're going to get into that. Um, the, <laughs> uh, so what are the, tra what are the trad principles when we discuss paganism? First, we need to, I, I just was reading, um, the story of King Jehu. King Jehu was a divinely inspired usurper of the kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of Israel, after it's, it had split from Judah and following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, who caused Israel to sin, as the sacred writer repeats over and over. And so this, the usurper Jehu was ordained by God to destroy the lineage of Achaz, you, you've probably heard of Ahab, perhaps, with uh, Elias the Tishbite and how he destroyed Ahab, his, his, his evil wife, Jezebel. And the story of the Old Testament is the struggle against paganism, the struggle to be faithful to the covenant with the true God. And there's this moment when King Jehu, who's destroying all the, the, the prophets of Baal, he's destroying the temples of Baal, he's cleansing the kingdom of Israel from its paganism. And King Jehu says to his companion, he says, come see my zeal for the Lord. And this is, and today also we have the, the feast of the, the, ch the chains of St. Peter, which is also relevant to our question, which hopefully I'll remember to get into. But um, we also have the, the martyrs, the Maccabean martyrs who refuse to compromise. We have this zeal for the Lord. We have this zeal for the glory of God that God may be worshipped, Almighty God may be worshipped with no compromise with the spirits of the air, with paganism, with the fallen angels who have created all, they, they are the creators of paganism because they create, they deceive man 
so that they can be make man into a slave by means of these false religions. That's what paganism is. And so there is no compromise. There's no compromise to be had with paganism. This is why the traditionalist saints, all of the saints universally, St. Patrick did this in Ireland. You have St. Bonavis doing this in Germany. You even have saints going into modern day Iran. You have saints in Ethiopia doing the same thing. Saints in the Persian Empire outside the Roman. And that is the destruction of the destruction of pagan shrines, the violent destruction of pagan shrines. And this is the zeal for the Lord of hosts. This is the traditional zeal against paganism. And this is traditionally a somewhat of an imitation of Elias the Tishbite. When he destroyed the prophets of Baal, this is what the, the saints have gone into, into these pagan nations. And the fallen angels have held the people captive. This is dr very dramatic in the story of uh, St. Patrick. When St. Patrick goes to Ireland, the Druids come and they do battle with St. Patrick. And St. Patrick calls upon God and Saint, the Druids call upon their fallen, the fallen angels. And the fallen angels actually work false miracles, basically. They, they work certain powers through the Druids and they fight against St. Patrick. Uh, it's it's a wonderful story. If you go read the old Catholic encyclopedia, it's 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 just beautiful. But St. Patrick goes toe to toe with them. And this is this is a spectacle. What this is, is a spectacle to liberate the people's minds from their fear of the demons. So St. Bonavis comes and destroys the sacred oak. And that's because the people were scared of the demons. They were scared because their their minds were captive. As St. Paul says in the book of Hebrews, he says that people were enslaved because of their fear of death. And so people were enslaved in, in paganism because they were afraid of, they were superstitious. They were afraid of these different things. And so the demons were trying to make them enslaved. And so these spectacles, the saints perform these spectacles, destroying the oak, destroying the idols, these violent spectacles to prove to the people that the power of the fallen angels was nothing compared to the power of the cross. It was a spectacle to show the zeal, the zeal against paganism, and to show for all to see that these things are empty. They have no power. And so that is the, the first traditional principle that we need to bring to this conversation. How do we deal with paganism at all in general? There is this zeal. Now, the second traditional principle of this is that the society is baptized. And what I mean by that is when a, in a society, when a nation receives the Holy Gospel, all that is within their, their nation, their society is baptized. What is explicitly demonic, what is calling upon the fallen angels, super, superstition, that is completely excised, completely eradicated and destroyed. Or at least it should be. It's not always destroyed. It's not always ideally done that way but everything should be destroyed so anything that's an evil custom anything that's calling upon the fallen angels of any kind that should be destroyed but then there are things that are totally neutral so for example the language of the people this is what the church is famous for is actually preserving the cultures of of in, in so-called indigenous peoples like here in americas in the americas you have the 
many different missionaries coming to the Americas and writing down for the first time a written language of an indigenous indigenous culture. So like here in Michigan, we have Venerable Bishop Baraga, and he was the first one to create written characters for various Indian languages. And so a language is a language is is indifferent. A language is not demonic in and of itself. And so the church preserves these things in the culture. Now, there are various things also that can be Christianized that were formerly that were formerly dedicated to demons, which can be Christianized. So, for example, there's different. So, I, I mean, I think of the the ways of the church usurping the pagan festivals different pagan festivals that, that existed at different times of the year. For example, November 1st, All Saints Day, was usurping an existing pagan festival. So we're taking something, a day that used to be dedicated to the fallen angels, and we're rededicating it towards something. So, But that's taking something that used to be demonic, and we're cleansing it, Christianizing it. Now, I want to point out as well, Archbishop Lefebvre had the exact same approach in Africa. He wanted to liberate the people from the demons, but he was he was moderate in his approach. In fact, he wanted to incorporate. He actually he favored. If you read this, the biography of uh, Marcel Lefebvre by Tissier de Malay, he favored a study actually of their demonic rituals, the voodoo, the voodoo uh, shamanistic drum rituals that they would that many of the Western tribes in West Africa would have, and he favored a study of these and an incorporation of certain innocuous elements, for example, certain drumming or rhythms or things like that, that are indifferent in of themselves, that were formerly dedicated to demons, they should be Christianized and put into certain rites. He said, for example, funerals and marriages. So this was, this was the judgment of Archbishop Lefebvre, which is completely in line with the traditional principle of Christianizing a society. So there's this zeal against the demons, and then there's the, the Christianization of everything that can be Christianized, something that can be retained that's traditional in that society, that's not dedicated to demons, or even if it is, to take out things that may be innocuous in and of themselves. So this is the principle. Now, the difficulty with doing this whole process is, is nothing new. The, the Chinese rights controversy in the 1700s what is something that's still debated to this day. So the Jesuits had incorporated certain Chinese rites, which they said were innocuous, which were formerly something that was superstitious, but they said that they could be Christianized, whereas the Dominicans said, no, that's totally pagan. We cannot incorporate that at all. And the Pope ruled against the Jesuits. These are the classical Jesuits at the time, uh, the good guys, the good Jesuits, if you will. Um, and the Pope ruled against them and sided with, with the Dominicans. And that actually provoked a, a, a halting of the Chinese mission of the time. Uh, so to this day, it's it's still it's still debated. Uh, but there has been more papal approval actually before Vatican II um, on some of these rights and some of the reversal of some of this controversy. So the difficulty, however, is really in the in the principle given by Saint John in his first epistle. He says this. He who loves God and yet hate his, hates his brother is a liar because he who says he can love God who is invisible, how can he love, say, how can he not love his brother who is visible? The, it's the principle, the, the two greatest commandments. 
love God and love your brother. And so this is the difficulties that we want to have this zeal for the Lord of hosts to destroy the demons. But we also want to Christianize this society. We want to Christianize it and win over all the hearts of those in a society to the gospel of Christ. So in the Americas, the French missionaries, the Spanish missionaries and the Portuguese missionaries brought the Holy Gospel to the peoples of the Americas and they built Christendom here that was founded on a this very principle. And it was built and it's a glorious history in every case. It is a glorious history because it was a building of and a new nation, a new nation of people based on the sacrament of matrimony. So you have the Métis, the French and Indian race, which is uh, Métis, meaning mixed. So this was, uh, so in my state of Michigan, we have a strong French Catholic history. We have uh, major cities founded by Métis. We have the, the Fords of St. Mary up north. We have, uh, as I said, Venerable Bishop Barriga, uh, Father Marquette, uh, these great French missionaries who blended and liberated liberated the indians from captivity to the fallen spirits and this was something i remember reading the story of paramarquette how he was coming to uh this was in the i believe it was the duluth area but it was west of the apostle islands in uh modern wisconsin and paramarquette was coming to one of the indian tribes there and they wanted him to come because they recognized the chiefs wanted him to come because they recognized the incredible salutary effect of the black robes, as they called them, the, the, the advent of the black robes on the Indian tribes and how they were liberated from demons. And after the black robe left and went to another tribe for a, a sometimes several years, the, the Paramarquette was going to go and, and, and uh, he was going to explore for the Mississippi River. And the chiefs made him promise. They said, you have to come back next year to help us, or you have to send a new black robe. And he had to make a promise before he left that tribe. So this is the, the, the true history of the Indians in the Great Lakes region or in Canada is among the French, at least among the French Catholics, you have this inter intermarrying, you have the whole Métis race, you have whole Indian tribes who are Catholic. By 1900, almost half, about half of all Indian tribes in modern Canada were Catholic. They had received the gospel. And this is an entirely different history than it is in the United States. Because the United States, because the Protestants don't have the true faith, they weren't able to resolve this problem. And they just pushed the Indians west or they killed them. And it, that's a very wicked history. Now, with any, any Catholic history, however, there are individual Catholics who go astray who don't follow these principles, who don't treat the Indians with true charity, and they don't actually preach and live the gospel. And so one, of the, one of the examples of this is, is the boarding school debacle, which was forced on the Catholic Church by the state. And so the interesting thing is that Pope Francis is, he, he went to Canada and he apologized for this. But what he's doing actually is he's justifying Catholics resistance to state and or Episcopal power. Because obviously what he's saying here is he's saying the Catholic Church it should should not should have resisted the Canadian government and or their own bishops. I'm not sure how much the bishops were involved in this in this forcing of the Catholic schools to to uh, take on the Indians or, or take them away from their families or the the wickedness of, that had gone on. 
But what this does is it actually justifies recognize and resist. Because what's going to happen in, you know, 50 years? Is the Pope going to come to the United States and, uh, you know, apologize? Or uh, what, what is the judgment of history going to be on the traditional Catholics who resisted our, our local bishops or the state authority in terms of COVID? So this is, this is, there is a certain good in this apology because it's justifying resistance. It's justifying a resistance to lawful authority, whether secular or ecclesiastical. It's justifying that resistance because it's saying they should have used their conscience. They should have had a properly formed Catholic conscience and they should have resisted, which is true obedience to Almighty God and disobedience to man. So that's an important principle of this. But what the Marxists have done in the Americas is that they have taken isolated examples of wickedness. Now, the, the most conspicuous example is obviously the slave trade, which is which was condemned by multiple popes, but individual Catholics nevertheless practiced it. Uh, Catholic kings allowed it or justified it, but it was a, a total act of violence against West African families, obviously. And there was also abuse happening in these schools in Canada. And so these uh, this abuse is, is com we, if we just judge it on the Catholic principles, uh, you know, these people should be disciplined, excommunicated, put to death if necessary, if it's a serious crime, um, which is what the church would have enforced if it was doing its job. Um, but what the Marxists have done in the Americas to attack the, the Christendom of the Americas, whether that's French Christendom, uh, Spanish Christendom or Portuguese Christendom, what they've done is they've taken certain excesses, certain sins by certain Catholic heroes or, or just Catholic um, uh, excesses by Catholics who were not acting Catholic. And they've said, see, this whole colonialism is a complete invasion of our territory. You are, you know, co colonizers, this, this whole Marxist dialectic. So the Marxist dialectic is all about creating tension between two people who maybe sometimes there's, there's a just cause for a grievance. You know, the poor are being oppressed by the rich. And the, so the Marxist comes along that poor, you you need to rise up and kill the rich people. With, here's a here's an AK-47. That's the Marxist way of way of approach. But the Marxist dialectic, they want they always want more conflict. And so what they do is they find something in the Catholic history which where Catholics went astray, and they use that to paint a, a false Marxist narrative of of everything that went on. And so this is what has happened in. Canada, as it has happened in Mexico, as it has happened in other parts of Christendom, uh, to destroy this this glorious narrative, this glor true history of, of Catholic Christendom in the Americas. Um, and so, for example, so the reports, according to Raymond D'Souza, he said this on uh, EWTN on um, uh, the Raymond Arroyo show last week. He said that most of the most of the Indians, it, like <laughs> here's another point I, I should have to mention. So this was something that Trudeau had 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 provoked people, the Marxist, the Marxist mentality, by claiming this false narrative, an oversimplified narrative of, of what went on in the boarding schools. And this provoked all the Marxists to go and burn Catholic churches and vandalize them. And several of them were burned. Many of them were vandalized. Um, and this is something that actually it, they actually attacked indigenous Indian Catholic churches. 
so you have the so what happened was Pope Francis apologized, and according to Raymond D'Souza, most Indians received this well. They said, "Okay, you're apologizing. Let's let's reconcile. Let's let's get beyond this." Whether that's the Catholic Indians or the Indians who are holding on to their their ancestral beliefs, which include pagan, paganism, and we'll get to that in a minute. But there is a minority who are Marxists. They don't want that. They don't want a reconciliation because then that Marxism loses its power if people reconcile. If people say sorry and they forgive each other, Marxism loses its power. So there are people who, who will, they'll never be they'll never be satisfied. And so that's why you don't you don't trust a Marxist. You don't back down against a Marxist. You don't apologize to a Marxist because a Marxist, he wants to use your apology to destroy you. That's what you want. He wants to do. That's the Marxist tactics. Because if he if he if he backs down and he reconciles, he's lost his whole power. And so this is the the situation that we find ourselves in. Now, the ceremony that the Pope participated in was some kind of welcoming ceremony by some sort of indigenous chief or shaman in which he invoked the 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 he he did his whistle in four directions. The, if you look, look at the link below, it has the whole thing on video with the translation. And he asked the Western grandmother to invoke the spirits, to welcome the spirits, that together we may be stronger. Now, I might be paraphrasing that a little bit. It's not an exact quote. Just go to the video and you can get exactly the quote translated into English. He was speaking in French. Um, and so the... The, I, I think the comment from Father Thomas Crean was very uh, acute. Um, Co-author of Integralism, the Manual of Integralism. Father Thomas Crean says, quote, Dear fellow Catholics, can we agree that we should not participate in ceremonies in which an elder whistles four times through a bone instrument before asking the Western grandmother to give us access to the sacred circle of spirits, end quote. Now, at face value, this appears to be paganism. It appears to be this superstitious indigenous belief, which means that souls, if this is the case, it means that souls are held captive by the fallen spirits. And the gospel comes to liberate the Indians from the fallen spirits and all of us from the fallen spirits. And so rites which invoke the spirits, the spirits of the air or something that's not almighty God or the saints, it's calling upon fallen spirits, at least at face value. Now, what are the principles? Now, we're, we're going to get back to John the 12th in just a minute. I want to put out two principles of judgment because I'm not, I'm not an expert on um, the, the particular Indian tribes that are in, involved in this. I'm not an expert. I don't know anything about that. I don't even speak French. So I can't even understand what the original language is saying here. Now, so here's the, here's the principle of judgment we need to have here. This is from St. Thomas... Uh, in his, in his uh, summa, let's see, which this is uh, where, where is this? Second part of the second part, question 60, okay? So here's the first principle of judgment we need to bring into this here. Whether doubts should be interpreted for the best. St. Thomas says this, things from the very fact that a man thinks ill of another without sufficient cause, he injures and despises him. No man ought to despise or in any way injure another man without urgent cause. And consequently, un 
Consequently, unless we have evident indications of a person's wickedness, we ought to deem him good by interpreting for the best whatever is doubtful about him. He who interprets doubtful matters for the best may happen to be deceived more often than not. Yet it is better to err frequently through thinking well of a wicked man than to err less frequently through having an evil opinion of a good man, because in the latter case, an injury is inflicted, but not in the former. So what is St. Thomas saying here? He's saying that when we have when we have something going on, we see our, our Catholic brother or sister or a priest or a bishop doing something that appears to be sinful. Okay. And this is exactly what we have here with the Roman pontiff. We have a situation where what the Roman pontiff is doing, he's putting his hand at his heart as are various cardinals at the ceremony in which what appears to be an Indian shaman is invoking the Western grandmother for spirits. So he appears to be participating in the pagan ritual. That's what, it, what all appearance, all appearances indicate. But what St. Thomas is saying is that unless we have evident indication of a person's wickedness, we should always interpret for the best what is doubtful. So we should always be interpreting everybody's actions in the best possible light. So because if we don't, we form a judgment that is incorrect. If, if a, he says that it's better to err by thinking well of someone when in fact we're wrong, that better than to err by thinking evil of someone when in fact they're right. Because in the latter case, we're actually doing an injury to our neighbor, whereas in the former, we're just wrong. Nobody's nobody's offended by that. We're just wrong. So there's there's no actual injury done. Now, the, so the question is, so we should always be interpreting everybody's actions as best as possible. And especially for the Roman pontiff, because as we, we owe anyone on earth, the most reverence possible is the, is the Roman pontiff. But the question then is, do we have evident indications of his wickedness? Now, trads have been saying for years now that we ask the Holy Father to clarify his stance on so many different issues because so many different things that he says and does indicate heretical and scandalous things to the faith. Now, this brings up the next principle, which is the principle of Scandal. Now, the term scandal means, according to St. Thomas, it is an occasion for spiritual ruin. That's what a scandal is. A scandal is an occasion for spiritual ruin. So what I do as a Catholic, as a Christian, can affect what my brother does. So I can cause a scandal by what I do, which will become an occasion of spiritual ruin for my brother. So here is the next principle of, of judgment, and we'll put these all together, and, we'll, and then we'll bring up John the Twelfth and why I think Otto really gives us a good example here. Um, so the next principle, we talk about scandal, because this is, this is what this is, is we can consider this according to what St. Thomas says. Uh, once again, this is um, Secunda Secundi, question 43. Here's what he says in article number two. He says, there can be passive scandal without sin on the person whose action has occasioned the scandal. As for instance, when a person is scandalized at another's good deed. So let's just assume for a moment what Pope Francis did was entirely Catholic. This was some somehow he was saying the Western grandmother, he was actually um, 
I don't even know. I mean, somehow it was Catholic. I'm not even sure how you could possibly interpret that that way. But let's just assume for a minute what he did was an entirely Catholic Indian ceremony, okay? Here's what how St. Thomas deals with that, which I think is very important. Um, he says, like manner, active scandal is always a sin in the, in the person who gives scandal since either what he does is a sin or, now listen to this, if it only have the appearance of sin, it should always be left undone out of that love for our neighbor, which binds each one to the, be solicitous for his neighbor's spiritual welfare, so that if he persists in doing it, he acts against charity, end quote. So what we have here is we have we have Pope Francis participating in a ritual in which some kind of Indian chief invokes the Western grandmother to bring us to union of some kind with these spirits. Again, I'm not quoting exactly. Just go to the go to the tape and, and get, get the actual words. But St. Thomas says, even if the thing should have the appearance of sin. So let's just assume for a moment everything that Pope Francis did was an entirely Catholic ritual, that which we don't understand because we just don't have... We don't know the, the indigenous culture or whatever. Nevertheless, can anyone say that this did not have at least the appearance of sin? Did it not have the appearance of sin to invoke the Western grandmother and to join with spirits? Yes, it did have the appearance of sin. I think, as, as, as Thomas Green really pointed out, can we just agree that we should not participate in such a ritual? But the problem is that by participating in this ritual, so let's say, again, let's assume it was entirely Catholic in and of itself. It gives the appearance of sin. It gives the appearance that we should participate in the invoking of the fallen spirits. So, so we should go, what this does is it's a scandal because even if it is some kind of Catholic ritual, it gives all of the appearances that as a Catholic, I should just go down to the local tarot card reader or the occult magician or whatever, and he needs to invoke his spirits. Or I can go to the local powwow. Let's say they got a powwow. Uh, some Indian tribes are doing their powwow and they're invoking the spirits. Well, I'd like to go do that because Pope Francis just did that himself. So I should just go do that to imitate Pope Francis, shouldn't I? I'm a good Catholic. Well, this is the type of thing that goes on. Catholics should not be involved in any rituals that invoke spirits. There is only one spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, and every other spirit is evil. There are There is the Holy Spirit, and there are the saints and angels. If we're talking about invoking spirits, that is the situation. Now, um, we need to realize that this is, this is the, the loose way that the popes have been dealing with paganism for some time, especially since John Paul II. They've been loose, unfortunately. Now, again, if we just even if we just assume all these things were entirely Catholic, nevertheless, they're given the the great the grave appearance of sin. So there's a there's an easy way to resolve this. You just make a statement, you promulgate an official statement which spells out precisely what this ritual was, so that the faithful can be saved from scandal. You say. This is, this is a Catholic ritual because of A, B, C, and D. Now, remember what happened with Pachamama. They asked, what was this? They asked, it was during the press conference. And they said, what is this? And the, the official Vatican spokesman said, well, it could be the Virgin Mary or it could be Mother Earth. We're not sure. We're not even sure what went on. 
So we have these rituals that are invoking spirits. We don't even, we're not even sure what they're on. Well, let's make an official statement to decree and officially clarify whatever is going on. That's how you deal with that. Now, let's get back to John the 20th, John the, I'm sorry, John the 12th. And I want to get to all everybody's comments and questions as well. Um, so what happens is John the 12th has all appearances that he's demon possessed, basically. And the people of Rome revolt against them. This is during the first pornocracy in the 900s. And they send a message to Emperor Otto, who comes and convokes a synod. He convokes a synod, and the synod brings out these witnesses, which all, so he investigates it. He's, he's implementing this principle of charity. He doesn't want to condemn the Pope. Like, we shouldn't want to condemn Pope Francis by this principle of charity. We should try to interpret everything to the best possible. But if we investigate it, and St. Thomas says, if we have evidence, evident, you know, something manifestly evident, we are forced to conclude that he is at least materially participating in wickedness. So this is what happened with um, John the 12th. Uh, Emperor Otto comes down over the Alps. He came to Rome and convoked a council, which condemned Pope John the 12th, who fled the charges. We strongly entreat thee, Father, Emperor Otto wrote to the Pope, do not refuse a return to Rome to defend thyself against all these accusations, end quote. You see, you see his piety. He, he's asking the Pope, Holy Father, please resolve this situation. This is what the trads have been doing for years with Pope Francis. Please resolve this situation. We have this, these charges against you. The Pope was obstinate, so the Emperor's Synod deposed him and elected Leo VIII as Pope. A struggle ensued between them, but God gave the judgment between Pope John XII when he was murdered by the husband of his mistress. Now, there's some debate over to how exactly he died. Some say it was it was a, a, some kind of disease where he was struck really quickly. Um, but Pope Leo VIII was established as Pope. And this is the this is the story of Emperor Otto and John XII. Now, this brings up a very important aspect of our modern issues in Catholicism is that we have a very clericalist idea of the church clericalist idea and in fairness this is something that brought was brought about before vatican ii with with actions such as Pius the ninth when he refused to bring lay people into vatican one for example but lay rulers lay noblemen and lay kings and emperors are part of the church's governance the traditional doctrine is the doctrine of the two swords in which there is a temporal sword and a spiritual sword, and the laity wield the temporal sword, even though the, the Pope has a certain temporal sword as well. But that's that. But this is what this is showing is that this is the the mutual help of the two swords, uh, because after this there was a big debate and a conflict between these two swords, which was resolved through the investiture controversy. But it is a traditional doctrine of the Church, the two swords, and the Council of Trent was actually going to define this, but they didn't get they didn't have time for it. But when we understand our role as lay people, we understand that we also have a role in governing the church. This is a traditional role for lay people, even going back to St. Constantine the Great of the Council of Nicaea. We have a role at times even in doctrinal disputes. It's not, it's not our purview to resolve them, but sometimes in cases that are quite extreme, such as John Twelfth. We have a role as lay people, and that's the traditional doctrine. But 
if, if you think traditionalism is just something in the 19th century, then you might miss this because this is this is in the 19th century or in the early 20th. That's when this 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 clericalist understanding of the church really came about. There's also the hyper uber ultramontanist understanding of the church, wherein if the pope fails in some way, if he becomes an idolater, if he if he sins in, in some wicked way, then the entire church fails. Well, that's because you're defining the church is the pope and the pope is the church. We just ran an article by uh, Dr. John Joy that described how the pope is not the church. Church is not the pope. And so we need to really dig into what are our presuppositions, bringing, bringing ourselves into this. Again, we, we have to have this judgment of charity, but we have to investigate it honestly. We shouldn't do violence to reason. We shouldn't say, well, well we need to just you know, give the pope a pass forever, even if we have just mountains of evidence against him. Uh, because ultimately that's denying our reason, our God-given reason. And the use of reason was dogmatized by Vatican I. We, that is also a traditional doctrine, is the use of reason, faith and reason, which work together. So I think that this Pope Otto, or Pope Otto, Emperor Otto gives us a traditional response to papal paganism, apparent, apparent papal pagan, paganism, where we need to judge these things with charity, but we need to judge them with reason as well. And this is the situation where we, we do have a ritual, we know the Pope participated in it, which, in with all due respect to His Holiness, seems to be a scandal. It seems to be an occasion of spiritual reason because it's teaching Catholics to go and participate in rituals which invoke the spirits. So that's all we have. That's the trad response, which I think helps to bring us to certain principles that we can look into this and uh, judge as Catholics with truth and charity. Um, let me see. Yeah, uh, Patricia is bringing up the, the legacy of Assisi. Um, and yes, that's exactly, uh, unfortunately, some of the confusion which has, has been brought about by this, this legacy. Um, awesome Possum is saying, St. Thomas, no, St. Thomas is talking about judging the person's character or intent, not his outward behavior. Um, I think that the principle of charity is going to apply whether it's inward or outward. Um, whether or not St. Thomas is is referring to specifically outward in that case. But I think the principle of charity, you know, if something that's outward, that's obvious, you know, you see something that's absolutely manifestly sinful in every case as outward behavior, that would be an example of evident, manifestly evidence uh, that this is a sin. So you have to come to it by the judgment of reason. You have to see that that, that, is, um, that is the judgment of reason. Um, let me see. So your first St. Thomas quote could apply to Pope Francis. We give him the benefit of the doubt. He didn't know what he was doing. He doesn't speak French, just was quite while the quiet while the other guy spoke. Um, yes, we do give him the benefit of the doubt until we have evidence otherwise. So was he not, so he had headphones on. Was he not given a translation that we got? We got a translation that said, he was invoking the, the grandmother, Western grandmother and the spirits. I don't really know. We, we can't really judge Pope Francis's heart, but we can say, hey, this is a scandal. That, that's what that's what we can say with definite clarity is that this is a this is a scandal. 
and the it, the Vatican, the Magisterium has the duty to rectify that scandal and say that just so everyone knows, we should no one should participate in rituals invoking spirits. Don't do it. That would be rectifying the situation to a large degree. Um, Samantha says, having to defend the papacy to my Protestant family is even more difficult with this mess. And never mind explaining this to fellow Catholics who want to defend it. So, yeah, this is exactly this causes a scandal to the faith because now we have to explain, you know, pious Protestants who have the same zeal for the first commandment that I discussed in the beginning. We've got to explain this to them. Well, I think the easiest way to explain this is that um, to, to bring them to the Holy Scriptures. That's really the best way to talk about this with Protestants always is to bring them to the Holy Scriptures. And you go to St. Matthew chapter 16 and you read to them, our Lord says, thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. And then you explain to them, this is the foundation of the church. This is the foundation of the papacy. It's right there in the Bible. But then you keep reading. And then it says that uh, Peter went down and tried to rebuke Jesus. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And then you explain to your Protestant friends, the Pope, however, even though he's the rock of the church, he is not impeccable. He is capable of sinning. Just ex exactly in this very case given to us by Scripture. And so this is how you explain these things to your Protestant friends. You explain to him that uh, even if Peter fails, as he does in the Holy Scripture, and you could even bring up the Galatians passage with St. Paul rebuking him, even if the Peter fails, even though he's the rock, Christ himself ultimately is the foundation stone, the chief cornerstone, as St. Paul says. Uh, and the rock of Peter... He is the person, he is the, his person is the rock, and his confession of Christ is the rock. And Christ is the rock. They're all three of them are the rock. But Peter himself can fail and become Satan, as the scriptures declare. So I think that's the, the easiest way to explain that to a Protestant. Um, let's see. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I've seen a few other comments um awesome possum says how much bad fruit do we have to pick up off the ground before we can judge the tree certainly uh as that's how, what our lord said uh to judge the false prophets by their fruit and i i think that at this point the trads respectfully and as well as many other non-trads really uh you don't have to be a trad there's many prominent catholics who are not trads who are also critics of pope francis um traditional thomas says do you think traditionalists are being gaslit in many of the scandalous situations because it is good to defend the pontiff? How can we not be gaslit? Um, I don't really understand that vernacular very well as to what that is, but as I understand gaslighting, it's it's basically kind of avoiding the issue and trying to distract the issue into something else. Um, I think what you're getting at, maybe if you could clarify what you mean by gaslighting, because I don't understand the vernacular, but um, it is traditional uh, I think Kennedy Hall did this well in one of an article earlier last year for 1 Peter 5. He said that it is traditional, as I as I tried to say, the traditional principle of charity applies to everybody, but especially the Roman pontiff. We should be giving the pontiff the, the benefit of the doubt above all, and that is the trad attitude. But that needs to be balanced with the trad reverence for reason. 
we have to have reason. We have to have a reasonable judgment. And that's why I think Emperor Otto gives us a, a perfect example of that. And he was, he was, he's not a saint, but he was, his contemporaries understood him to be very pious. He was, he was revered as a very pious emperor. And so his piety was expressed by the fact that he was given an accusation against the Pope. Uh, oh, Samantha's clarifying to me. Gaslighting is when someone points out a wrong, but the wrongdoer makes them feel crazy like they aren't seeing what they are seeing. Okay. Yeah, that, that's more, thank you. That's more specific. Um, and this is this is what you do in ab abuse situations. The abuser abuses you, and then he makes it feel like it's your fault. That's like the gaslighting, as I understand you explaining this. Um, yeah, traditional Thomas says, nothing is going wrong. You are just being critical, when in reality, our reason is telling us something is wrong. Uh, yeah, so this is the, so this is why I want to go back to the presuppositions, because I think that defenders of Pope Francis, I think that they have a presupposition about the doctrine of Vatican I. And I think that their presupposition is that the, the, the ambiguous phrases that are contained in Gasser's Relatio about the Pope has unfailing faith, and he, he even says that the, the Sea of Rome cannot become a Sea of Pestilence or else the, the, the church will be destroyed. Well, these are ambiguous phrases that have not been doctrinally defined. And when you take these things and you have a presupposition, the presupposition doctrinally is saying the Pope can never fall into sacrilege. He can never fall into this, this massive scandal. Uh, we're having all these presuppositions. So, I, and then not only that, but I'm going to attach my Roman Catholic faith to this presupposition, this, this doctrinal interpretation of Vatican I. So if, if that's wrong, so this is the presupposition. If that's wrong, then my entire Roman Catholic faith has been destroyed. So this is what I think some papal defenders, they might be in this mindset. They might believe that their faith would be destroyed if the Pope really was participating in a pagan ritual. Now, if that's the case, if your personal faith is based on your interpretation of Vatican I, which I would say is one possible interpretation, but is not an official definitive uh, interpretation at all, uh, but rather, I would say the opposite is, is being borne out with the Francis pontificate. If you presuppose that, well, you're going to think that everybody who critiques Pope Francis is actually uh, psychologically messed up. You're going to think, oh, well, all these people just hate Pope Francis because I'm starting with my faith is going to be destroyed if they're right. So I think that the answer is, if, if you are presupposing that, you need to reevaluate your understanding of Vatican I. Instead of destroying your faith in the Roman Catholic Church, no, you, don't, you don't need to lose your faith in the Roman Catholic Church. You need to reevaluate that you may have misunderstood Vatican I in that point. Um, and, th and then think that this ends up being a sin against charity in the opposite way. You have all these trads, and I, as I say, also non-trads or mainstream voices who are not trad at all. Or they wouldn't say themselves that say that they're trads. Uh, it's all contained in this text right here. Um, this is a very, very good text. Defending the faith against present heresies. This text is a bunch of trads and non-trads and all of their critiques of Pope Francis. And so more and more, the papal defenders have to sin against charity towards all their fellow Catholics. They have to say, oh, well, these guys are psychologically messed up. These guys hate Pope Francis. These guys are unreasonable. They're irrational because you're starting with this presupposition 
that the Pope cannot do these things. He's he, he's incapable of falling into this immense error, this immense scandal. So if you start with that and you, you stake your whole Roman Catholic faith on that point, which is a disputed question of Vatican I, then you're going to end concluding that all these fellow Catholics and critics of Pope Francis are just totally irrational. Now, to be fair, some of us are irrational. Some of us are uncharitable. So it happens. I mean, critics of Pope Francis are not, they also can sin against charity or sin against piety against Pope Francis. It can happen, obviously. Um, but we need to be, we need to be fair as much as we can to every everybody, especially the Pope, but all of our fellow Catholic brethren. We got to judge everybody with charity as much as we can. But more and more as Francis Pontificate goes on, I, I think that it's it's more difficult for pious and reasonable Catholics to ignore the fact that there are Catholics of every stripe, whether you're a trad or not, or whatever camp you're in, there are Catholics of every stripe who have serious concerns with Pope Francis. And they want him to change direction. They want him to answer the dubia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that is all the time we have. We've gone over the time that I wanted to spend, but thanks so much for watching. So once again, please become a monthly donor. We do need your support uh, and to rebuild our donor base. So so th thanks so much for watching. I'm trying to get my Our Lady of Fatima icon, which we've been trying to promote. Uh, we pray especially for our Ukrainian Catholic brethren. Uh, and we also support the Shrine of Our Lady of Fatima in St. Petersburg, Russia, which is led by the Russian Catholics there. So let's pray a Hail Mary to end this out. Always that Our Lady, who is the destroyer of all heresies, she's the crusher of the serpent, cleanse all, all of our hearts from every, every slavery to demons, every slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's pray. In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tuum liarabus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Blessed Emperor Carl, pray for us.